welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, Fresh from my COVID bed, it's nice to be out and about and appreciate the prayers. And if nobody can really ever accuse um, us, I think I did say <laughs> I need coffee this morning. It's just a COVID thing. Um, I don't have COVID, by the way, <laughs> but it does leave you tired. And just burnt my lips. Um, I, yeah, you're, we're, we're, nobody can accuse us of not being organized and planned. So um, Sam kindly stepped in for me last week and then um, he got COVID this week. So um, we, I can return that favor this week. We're really hoping and praying David gets it next week just so that we can be organized. That's a joke, by the way. David, don't hear that. Um, but it is nice to be out and about and uh, appreciate the prayers. This morning we are picking up our series again from the book of Revelation and we arrive this week at chapter 2. Um, hopefully with minds now alerted, if you can recall where we started in the book of Revelation, that we are learning to read this book, being very mindful of the type of genre, the type of book it is. Uh, it's a hybrid genre, of course, we know that. It's a, an apocalyptic, prophetic, circular letter. We all know that now and are at least learning to read some of the imagery with a bit of care uh, and understanding um, as we go. The text begins to focus on chapter two on the particulars of seven different churches across Asia, which is mostly modern day Turkey as we know it. St. John with a fresh vision of Jesus as this glorious son of man, a vision that he has seen, he starts to record and relay on to the, to the churches uh, in the prophetic tradition a, a word. He has a word to these seven churches that is specific. Um, to these churches who are depicted in the text symbolically as seven golden lampstands. Imagery drawn from the Old Testament temple, if you recall any of that imagery from your Old Testament. The temple was that thin place where heaven and earth are meant to interlock together. It's meant to be a special uh, representation of where God meets with his people, which is a clue to what the lampstand, i.e. the church, is meant to be. And the prophetic word stands uh, to these churches in the prophetic tradition. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches is their recurring refrain. It's the equivalent of the Old Testament prophets saying, thus saith the Lord. It's that sort of um, tradition that uh, the writer John sees himself standing in. Uh, the number seven, right from the beginning of the Bible, signifies completion. It's like a code that we see all the way through uh, the scriptures. And so when it's used here of the seven churches, this is a message to specific churches. These were real places that we need to understand to some degree what was going on. But it is also a message to the whole church, completed the seven, the whole church today. So the questions 
will become in due course, what could this mean for us? How does this text speak to us as ones um, of its albeit later intended targets? Which is another way of saying, if Jesus came to church, which I hope he does uh, by his spirit, if Jesus came to church and stands in the middle of us, what's he saying? What does he see? The Spirit of God addresses these seven churches, and let me put it like this. I want us to hear the prophetic voice calling out each church's potential, awakening their hearts uh, and to the will and to the voice of God. I want you to hear the potential of church in an unlikely era. And the words in the text that should be like um, triggers to this potential are those of being faithful, and being victorious, which is going to be the repeated refrain to these churches, about being faithful, to be victorious. And emphatically, the text will make it very clear that this potential is is something that they need to contend for. It's something they need to fight for. These churches are in a battle, a battle of faith, in order to to live up to their potential, but what God is calling out um, for them. By the way, if you're just exploring faith. Maybe you're listening and you, know, you might not consider yourself a Christian. You might think already it's starting to talk about church, it's insider speak. Perhaps one lens of just listening to this is to listen and imagine the story that you're listening to is about a God who accommodates himself, who, who comes down to the level and desire, desires to, to work in and through ordinary people like you and I. That's what's going on here. So whatever level you listen, this is a God who, and his desire is not just to work remotely, but is to work in and through the details of ordinary lives through these uh, churches. The letters in their final form are presented to us in what will become a familiar pattern as you just read through the message to the seven churches. They all uh, receive, uh, apart from one, uh, um, a message of commendation, of encouragement, if you like, challenge and then a promise, a promise about the the fullness of time that is theirs to hold on to. In fact, there's only one church who receives no commendation whatsoever. I mean, Sardis, who knows what was going on in Sardis, but it did not sound great. They all, all they get is challenge and we will come to that at some point. But all are called to battle and to take hold of their full potential uh, before God. And so here we must begin understanding in the book of Revelation the cosmic battle and how that plays out in the concrete realities of the church. The cosmic battle in the sense of, okay, theologically, what was going on here according to the writer in the book of Revelation? But also the concrete realities. What's this battle play out like? How does that look like? So here we must begin. So first of all, the the, the battle in sort of the cosmic sense and the the theological sense of the book of Revelation. Revelation describes a a cosmic battle. Uh, At points, it's like the the Trinity, the the Lamb, the Spirit, who's described as the seven spirits, and the one on the throne, God Almighty, versus the unholy Trinity of the Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. And these are played off. It's like a cosmic battle of good versus evil that is depicted and we are encouraged to see that the, the, the centerpiece, the storyline of following the way of the Lamb, the surprising way of the Lamb, was the way of victory in this uh, great plot. Um, and so it, we are invited to, to see it as that drama. 
And there is a sense of in this battle, it's, it's not just an abstract battle, it's, it's a battle for truth. Truth is a really important part of this battle. The, the Satan or the, the devil, the, the devil, Diablos is, is the word for it, is, means one who makes false accusations and Satan just means the accuser. So there's a sense of how he operates is by, by lies, by deception and, and false accusations. This is a battle for truth. And, and right throughout the letters, all of them, it says, do not be deceived by Jezebel. Do not deny the truth. It's about exposing false conditions and showing the truth. And, and that statement that in some ways probably is quite challenging and haunting is when Jesus just stands among and, and says, I know, <laughs> which is a truth statement. I, I know the realities of what's going on in our lives. And so it's a battle, it's a cosmic battle, but it's a battle of, of truth. And if you get in the slide um, from, um, that shows just the battle that uh, one writer, John Mark Comer, he, he, he's a modern writer and the pastor trying to waken up a generation to realize that we are in a battle. We don't realize it very often. We don't think it very much, but we are being formed. We are being formed with ideas, bombarded with ideas, all the time in our world. And you might not think yourself you're in a, in a tradition of being formed and formation. I'm not particularly religious. But his argument is that we are all being formed whether we like it or not. And he, he, he reimagines a, a, an old tradition of seeing the battle of faith, the battle for truth, in terms of seeing the devil, the, the three battlefronts, the devil, the flesh, and the world, and tries to show and remind how that works out in the reality of our lives and doesn't just remain abstract. It works in deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires. Then it gets into the system. It creates societies that are based on that. And whatever you think of that, he, he is trying to, in his book, Live No Lies, awaken us to this fact, this reality that we are in a battle and it's a battle for truth that sits very uh, comfortably alongside this um, story in, in the book of Revelation. But it's also a battle, as I've said before, that doesn't just remain up here. It's sort of esoteric, aloof, and this big you know, thing in the sky, Star Wars style that happens. It, it gets very much gr grounded in reality through the book of Revelation. The symbolism points to real things. Babylon symbolizes the might of Rome. The 666 number that comes up, symbolize, and the serpent's head, symbolizes the, the emperor at the time, although people disagree over exactly who it was. And again, to appreciate the reality of the battle that this church that was being addressed, um, that they were facing in Ephesus. Um, this is, this, the book of Revelation was written sometime between AD 82 and AD 90. And there's a wee bit of wriggle room on that dating, so don't get too excited about it. But what you should know is the date in comparison to AD 70 being a, an incredibly crucial year. In AD 70, Rome knocked out the temple, knocked out Jerusalem. And if you remember being in the story of Jeremiah, oh my goodness, it happened all over again. And from AD 70 onwards, Rome became the new Babylon. And that's why I refer to this Babylon and the whore and the might of Rome, because they were people, they were churches who had experienced the unthinkable had happened again. Their temple that they had rebuilt had been destroyed and Rome had just gone right through them and destroyed any, any sign of their hope. And so what 
would that do? What do you think that would do to their, their mindset and their faith? Completely flattened. Completely in a culture going, oh, we thought we had the hope of the world. And they, all they had was more trauma, more loss, like rubble and, and death. And for some, you could imagine they were probably just numb. Others, you could imagine, were just like maybe defiant and, and, and rising up. And, and others, yet again, were like, right, the, the show's over here. Right, let's pack up. Let's, let's just live a quiet life because I don't think we're on the winning team here. And so somewhat famously now, St. John calls this church to look back in order to go forward again. He calls them to consider where they have been. And he holds this against them. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first, which is where we're going. He's calling them back in this moment of trial and difficulty to their first love and how things were. It's a bit of a, almost to an, an origin story. You, you probably, if you're familiar with how origin stories work, they can be quite powerful things in organizations. Um, they can be quite contrived things in organizations, but they can be powerful things to help people recover and move forward. Um, I was thinking about this uh, in my sick bed um, for the last couple of weeks, so I got a bit of time to do that. And uh, I came across a, a, a pastor speaking in the church in Anaheim Vineyard in California, which I don't know if you know the church at all, but it is the first vineyard church. Vineyard is a, is a, is a, a huge movement. And, and the, the guest preacher was just... Um, reminding the, the church of their history, and he does a, a quick um, run through of that. And I, I didn't need to hear because I remembered it um, quite clearly. I grew up um, with is John and Carol Wimber, who were the founding pastors. And the way they described their story is they they met as sixty burnt out people just wanting to seek and find Jesus, and 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 boy, did they find Jesus and, and go on an incredible uh, journey. I, I used to, as when I was younger, um, I'm still young, but when I was really young, um, I, my, my mom had all these cassette tapes of John Wimber. And, and as a child, I, I just used to go in her study and, and they were fascinating because they had all these cool titles. And it's one of these, you know those books you used to have with like a whole set of cassettes in them, you close over. I don't think they exist anymore, except in the museum. But the titles like How to Cast Out Demons, How to Raise the Dead, how, you know, like, not the standard when I grew up in a Presbyterian church, the stuff you hear on a Sunday. And of course, I'd like put these cassettes in. And this character, particularly John Wimber, he was so charismatic. And he was known for the signs and wonders, the spectacular things God did through his ministry to the extent that there, I think the phrase signs and wimbers was one that was coined just to give you a flavor um, of, of, of his ministry. And, um, but the thing was, like, I was thinking about the, the journey of their church. This is a church burnt out, 60 people just worshiping Jesus. And the significance of that story was, it, you might know nothing about the Vineyard Church or John Wimber, but if you are anywhere involved in the church in the United Kingdom, it has had a huge impact and is still having a huge impact even in this day. Not just as you point to the, the Vineyard movement of churches that you see, but John Wimber made some important connections with people like David Watson, who was a minister in St. Michael's the Belfry. It became a charismatic renewal that led to things like New Wine, Soul Survivor. 
that led to Sandy Miller getting fired up with the Holy Spirit, going to HTB, Alpha. And you start to realize, oh my goodness, almost objectively, even if you come at this just with no faith, just objectively look at what happened when a church just held on to that thing. What has God got us here for? What has God got us here for? And undeniably, and there'll be warts and all, I bet if you dig in the story, it's not all glamour, it's not all amazing, but what an amazing testimony of a church who who actually, yeah, I I genuinely believe God has us here for something. Now, it won't all be the same thing for every church. So it also reminded me in my my sickbed um, of Adelaide Place, Um, hopefully this is colder, and our origin story now, if you, I don't know if you know it, um, and you might, have diff, you might jump on at different points of, you know, of Adelaide Place, of different beginnings of chapters and stuff, but I, I, I was reminded of it, um, not least I was talking to David, colleague uh, who was leading worship, um, who was saying um, the great, great, great nephew of James Patterson um, got in touch in the last couple of weeks to say, hey... Um, I found these documents, and um, James Patterson was the founding pastor of this church. Now, how the story goes is, it was just as I, hear, I heard it, was is a man of nervy steel met in a flat in the upper floors of a flat on some street that is escaping my memory. But you can check it out on our Wikipedia page. There we have a really detailed and up-to-date Wikipedia page, and I would encourage, not now, like if I see anybody look at it, not now. But we have a great Wikipedia page that is 100% the truth because I know who put it together and she makes no mistakes. Um, so, yeah, so is, the story goes, so these men of nerves of steel in the upper floor of flat and then the, the, it moved to a place on, on Hope Street. The church moved there, which is now apparently where um, Central Station is, so the church building. Then it moved to Adelaide Place, which was the street um, that's now no longer called that, but that's why it's called Adelaide Place. <laughs> You've learned something, eh? Uh, so we are, uh, so, so there's a, a, a tradition there, but I was thinking about, I think the story goes, he, he sold some of his books to, to make it happen, sold his library. But again, thinking about all, all this and all of these different seasons of our church that have happened, the Baptist College began in this, to meet in this place and now is in Glorious Paisley. You know, all of these things, if you look back and you can read the Wikipedia later, Happen because a group of people in a flat decided to say, what has God got us here for? And I'm sure they couldn't imagine how glorious it's all turned out today. I mean, we're just a joke. But, you know, like, I'm sure they couldn't imagine how all of those chapters from, from just that basic pursuit of God, and there's a sense of that's part of our origin story. And there's a sense of looking back not just to, to go back. It's a sense of looking back in order to go forward again. And, and there's this move that we find in this text. It's looking back then to this Ephesian church that was. It used to be the absolute red-hot center of Christianity. It would move to Rome, and then you could argue probably somewhere in the Latin South or in Asia today, but um, it would move around the, the heartbeat of Christianity. But for a season for an important part of the early church, Ephesus was the red-hot center of Christianity. It was planted by Paul, nurtured by the awesome couple Priscilla and Aquila, Aquila, pastored by Timothy, 
And at the time of writing of Revelation, it was the fourth largest city in the empire. It was a financial center. It was an urban center in every sense of the word. And we could almost say, you know, mark my words, the call to discipleship was worked out among the grit of cities, among real people, real business and challenge, and not in some utopian make-believe world from long time ago. This is an incredibly vibrant church that planted churches that had an absolute earthquake of, of a sense of, of importance and, and reverberations for the early church. And so there, there are commendations for this church in Ephesus. And of course, there's some general principles or commendations for all the churches before we get into the specifics of those to Ephesus. In the text, we find that, importantly, all of the churches get their identity from Jesus. He is the one who's described as who holds the seven stars in his right hand. So right from the beginning, the importance of the church is the fact that they are from Christ, held by him. He is the one who holds everything together, the seven stars, and implies that he holds the church. So every, at the start of every church, it shows you that actually the most important thing about this church is their identity in Christ, that he is held, which is both a comfort and a thing of humility, that actually no church can get above its station other than the church that is submitting to Jesus, the one who holds them. But as well as that, we find generally at work in the book of Revelation that the Spirit's work is important in Revelation and kind of coincides or correlates with what we find the Spirit's work in the wider New Testament. But the church gets its energy and life from the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit works in at least two ways that are important to hold together. There's the Spirit that is addressed in this section of speaking to the church, of, of prophetically and building up the church and ministering to the church, to the people. But then we also have this, the four spirits being sent into the world to lead them to the nations. And so you find this dynamic of the Spirit, the, the ministry of the Spirit both builds them up and, and helps them grow up, but it also is the Spirit of mission. It's the Spirit that leads them out, who is active beyond these four walls, believe it or not, and is leading them to the nation. See that, that in general, that he, this is the work of the Spirit in the church that is, that is, that is central. But as well as that, this whole thing of seven and the different messages to seven is another way of saying as well, no one church makes up the, the complete church. No one church has it all. And each church has this different dynamic and word going on. And so there is an implication again for this church that is actually... There's a sense of, of just getting on with what God has us for, but also honoring the wider bride and recognizing with humility that no one church has all the answers, nor are we meant to. There's something in that beauty as well. And there's specific encouragements and commendations are for, in, in verse two, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know you don't tolerate wicked people, and you've tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Because in cultures that tend to underplay those sorts of things, maybe underplay faithfulness and overplay success and power and achievement, this is an important accommodation for the church then and I would suggest the church at times now to hear as well. 
They are praised for their, their hard work and, and discerning, not easily like, swayed by false apostles who come in with impressive teaching and impressive words. No, the, these were people who, who were found to be orthodox. They were people who were found to be tested and at times, whether they liked or not, they stood up against it. They were not given into the litany of idols that were easily accessible to them in, in Ephesus. Ephesus, if you'd known the Roman Empire, they loved to show off their might. So it'd be a very visible thing. And Artemis, one of the, the seventh wonders of the world, was in this place. And, and many people came to pay homage. And you know, this would be an easy place just to go, oh, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But no, they, they are praised for their sort of almost stubbornness to, to not be easily taken and to not, um, not to be given in. And remember, this is the place Paul was like, they're wanting to chase him out of town because people were coming to Christianity and it was affecting business because there's a, there's a rampant business behind the idol homage and worship. And so people are going, no, there's one true living God. And the city was starting to, they were losing money. And they're like, Paul, I'll wait with you. And again, there's a sense of, there was something so good about the hard work, the perseverance, they were... You'd almost say, my goodness, they, they sound perfect. They, they, they could do no wrong. John Stott described them energetic in their service, patient in their suffering, orthodox in their faith. What could possibly be wrong with them? Except the Son of Man has flaming eyes, if you recall the, see, the, the scene from earlier. Flaming eyes which pierce and which purify and which purify not out of some sort of abstract fear, but purify with an intent until they be all that they can be and are, are meant to be in, in God. They are purifying eyes. And they see a flaw that is significant. It's significant enough to kind of give you that whiplash of like, they're amazing, and like, Phew. Then this um, word of challenge or correction comes. Yeah, I hold this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Abandoned the love they had at first. It's maybe understandable by way of uh, comparison to maybe marriage. It's common for a relationship when it has worked hard, endured difficulties, maybe raised a family, gone through it all, helped so many people, warded off challenge, financial challenges, just been through it all. It's familiar for people to find themselves at the end of those types of seasons going like, yeah, but where are we in, in that relationship? And, and, and there's a sense here of maybe it seems that that can happen for churches. And in, 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 in some ways, the cyclical way of this was not just for them, but also for the churches that would come, there'll be seasons where it's just maybe easy to be overtaken for stuff. And then you find yourself going like, where, where are we actually at before God and, and this thing? Because remember, remember, more importantly and positively maybe, God was not looking for robots to carry out his will and to submit to his mighty power. That's not the script. That's not the story that you find. You find it in other religions. But in Christian, that's not the story. God, from creation to revelation, we find a God whose image we are made in, who is relational and who wants to express himself through us, who says, I'm going to give you my very breath and put it in you so that I can work in and through you. And 
And as you live well with my spirit in you, you live well and, and produce this beautiful kingdom life. And somewhere this lampstand was under threat because of that. All the other things, the orthodoxy, the holding, the dogged sort of determination that we love. And yet there was this flaw. And, and it calls for a response. And, you know, if you needed alliteration, you could do the whole remember, repent, and redo thing. There is a sense of, there's a response call for it. Hence why this, this origin story is like, remember where you've fallen. There, there is something powerful when you remember where you've been. Not so you can recreate it, but so that, so that you can go forward. So that you can draw on that and go forward. And then it just says, consider, remember where you've come or how far you've fallen. And then there's this word, is, is repent. And it, it's kind of, I like the word. I, I know it's old school in some ways, but I, I genuinely like the word because it's an interrupting word. It's a, it's a whatever it takes. It's not, it's not just I'm going to make a, a modification here and maybe, okay, add that into the collection. This is a stop you in the tracks, go in a different direction, and there'll be times and seasons in a church's life and in an individual's life, you're like, no, this is a, a, a whatever it takes moment. This is, this is crucial. This is a, I need to go in a different direction here or else it lights out. It's an interruption. It's a, it's, it's, it, and it doesn't always come when you want it, when you feel like you need it. It, 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 it just interrupts our life and it calls for a different way, repent. And then it says, redo the first love, the things you did at first. Um, okay, what, what, as I was been deliberating over that, um, it, it brought to mind, there's a parable in, in Matthew's gospel, I can't remember where, forgive me for that, it's the two servants and they're told to do something by the master. And one says, yeah, 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 and, and then doesn't. And the other one's like, no, 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 and then does. And, and the ones that are praising that are, are the ones that do it. And so this is not about emotional response here. This is about actually what we do, what our faith looks like. And, and that passage from right is a bit of a rebuke in the Pharisees, the leaders who, who are like, yeah, 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 we're doing this. We look right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, the, the detail isn't here is in the doing. Is, is, and this is what's called for. It's not... It's not a, 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 an emotional state, perhaps, or at first anyway. It's a, it's a redoing. And, you know, some of it, it's very easy to get into that place spiritually where we're like, oh, if only I could waken up the days where I used to be passionate and it felt like this. And, you know, you know and often if, if you've been to university, those are often quite formative times. So you look back to first year when, you know, you're as daft as a brush. Sorry, no, I, I'm talking about myself. I'm not saying you guys, first years are not daft as a brush. I was. It's not me, it's me, yeah. And you're trying to recreate that, and, and you can't. You can't go back. You, you grow. Once stuff happens, you have to deal with it. But it's not necessarily an emotional response. It's, a, it, it's quite a steady redo the things at first. And think of that parable, that servant. It's not about what you say. It's actually more important about what you do. This is the sort of response that is being stirred up in Revelation. So what about us then? What about Adelaide Place? What about you? What about how this text addresses us if we believe 
that Jesus is among us by his spirit. Or if we visualized him being here present, what would he say? Maybe there's something about just being content or, or calling with more thankfulness, a vision of faithfulness over metrics of success. Do we hear the well done over our lives? Sometimes we don't. We just hear the, what we get wrong. Do we hear the well done about perseverance when it wasn't easy? When we just kept going, when we were, could have given up and we didn't give up, when we, we just kept one step moving in the right direction? Do we hear a well done of simply being faithful to Jesus and holding on to the truth when we could have walked away? I think there's something to hear of that. Some of us need to hear well done. Some of us need to hear the accommodation, the, the encouragement of Jesus spoken over their lives, spoken over our, our community. Because it's so easy to think that success is X, Y, and Z. And you're like, well, all we can do is this. And Jesus says, look, I just need you to be faithful. It won't feel good. I just need you to be faithful. And he rejoices over that. And, but then there's also about this redoing. And I, I, I want to put this in terms of five shifts towards return to first love. I wanted this to land more concretely so that we weren't left. And obviously I had time, like as I said, to think about this in my sick bed, which I'll stop talking about. So there's five shifts that I think that came to my mind. You might have slightly different, but as I dwelled on this passage, uh, maintenance to mission, passivity to participation, prayer as a sense of duty to prayer as a place of pursuit, the word, the Bible as just ideas and positions versus the word, towards the word as the sustenance and power in our life. And then a move from chaotic little loves to ordered first love. Maintenance to mission. My, 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 I remember my sister used to always moan at me um, whenever I started dating Claire in first year. Um, at uni, she's just like, would you shut up about Claire? Claire's this, Claire's that, Claire's perfect, Claire's amazing, Claire's this, you know, like, and uh, she's like, she's not, uh, Claire, me, and my sister's the idea, she's just a brilliant person. Um, so, uh, but you know, uh, there's something about that, you know, there's the first love thing, you're just always talking about it, and then you see people like that now, and you're just like, shut up. But there's, Newbegin, uh, 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 a missionary. He, he, he says, mission in the New Testament always began with an explosion of joy. <laughs> you know, sometimes we think about sharing our faith and you're like, somebody's just led like, like you to do the worst thing possible. But actually, mission in the New Testament was more like a, a, a reaction. It was an explosion of joy. We've seen the risen Christ. He's alive and he's changed my life. My goodness, I was dead and now I'm alive. You know, is that sort of a, a vibe. And so there's a sense of... Um, a good sign we're returning to our first love when we start thinking about mission, uh, maintenance to mission. Passivity to participation, and it's been a theme that's been building in our community over the last number of weeks and months that actually there's something about that posture when it moves from arms folded to actually leaning in, it actually, yeah, I've got skin in the game here. I want to make a difference. Prayer as duty, which is probably in one sense the default mode at times, to Prayer as pursuit and a hunger for God to do things in our lives. Word as ideas and positions. 
And really just misunderstanding what the word is meant to do. It's not designed to defend a position, to attack people with, to fill our heads with stuff. It's, it's meant to be something ingested. It's meant to be something that forms our loves and our desires and brings encouragement. It's a dynamic encounter and relationship we are meant to have uh, with the, the, the written word in its final form of the word Christ Jesus. It has a it's almost like, remember the old line of like in the Bible, if you want a secret hermeneutic, a way to read it that's really going to open up for you, and I think this stands, it's not this, yeah, is, is look for something to obey. It has a transformative power when we stop towering over it and we just come to it with our minds switched on, but our hearts ready to obey. Word is uh, as sustenance, life and power. And finally, just chaotic little loves to ordered First love, how many people know when spiritual intimacy is squashed or thwarted by the sometimes imperceptible death of a thousand paper cuts of choices, decisions, schedules that just leave you with nothing left. And things that are not bad, but are only bad when they become the primary and only thing in your life. So good things just dominate. And how easy, you know, you get to a point and you, you buy a house and you... You're tied into the house and then the house isn't big enough and you need another house. And you know, Some of these things go on and on and on. Or sometimes it's just work and, and making ends meet. And just, do you know, I don't even, the privilege, which it is to talk about a house, it's just like, I just need to find like, food. I, I'm, I, I don't have time to worry about all these things. So many angles in our society can squeeze us. And yet we are called in those things to find Christ and to order our lives around our first love. Spiritual intimacy to never be sacrificed. And it, for John to be the pastor that he is, who, who, or pastoral heart that he seems to write with, he, he finishes and relays on this message um, with a promise. And the promise here is that beautiful picture of paradise, of the tree, think of the tree of life at the beginning, so it's a harken back to Eden, the garden of, and to this picture of conquering. And remember, we're from the vision of Jesus as the son of man. He is one who, sun, who, who shone like the sun in all of his brilliance. Jesus has a warmth. And so there's a promise here that this is a word that calls out potential. It's designed to present us from settling, but it's to say, look, this way is better. <laughs> I know there's gonna be lots of different ways, but this way will satisfy. This tree of life is the best way to go for your life. It will go on bearing fruit. It will be an eternal life. This way is the abundant life. This picture of a tree that will not fail, that will let you down, that is worthy of your obedience and your, your orientation of your life. If Jesus is who he says he is, you will be best honoring and submitting and giving your life to him because you'll find it, you'll give, he'll give it back in abundance because he is a radical God of love. And so this image is designed to awaken us from compromise, from settling, from backsliding. It's meant to encourage us if we're in our latter years. And maybe you might think to yourself, oh, I wonder how many years I've got left on this green earth. And actually there's a sense of actually, well done, do not fear, keep moving forward. There are good things ahead of you. This tree will not let you down. It's a wonderful calling out of potential. It's a dream of intimacy and it's a call to adventure and passion. 
to the abundant life of Jesus. May the Spirit give us ears to hear this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we even reflect on those simple words, I know, Lord, there's so many ramifications to those words, such deep comfort to a God who perceives our thoughts from far away, who perceives our escape plans, our routes to run away like Jonah, to to hide in the depths, and there's nowhere to hide from you. But they also hear those words as comfort, God. Help us to hear anything challenging through the lens of a loving Father who holds before us abundance, healing, joy returning. And Father, we worship you. We worship you, Jesus, and we welcome and worship you, Holy Spirit. Amen.